I'm going to ask you to use your imagination. Uh, when you're in preschool or kindergarten, teacher would say, put on your, your thinking caps, put on your imagination caps. And so I encourage you for just a minute to kind of use your imagination. Imagine, if you would, that you are living back in Jesus' day. You're in Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, and you're an out-of-towner. Uh, this is your first time in Jerusalem. You're there maybe, let's say, um, on business from Rome. And you get up on, in the morning one day, and you make your way through the city to visit a client, when uh, all of a sudden you notice there's something different. There's a buzz in the air, and more people than normal are on the streets, and they seem to be moving in the, in the same direction. And it gets your attention, and you notice it's just men, women, children, a mix of everybody, uh, and they seem to be excited, and you pick up on somebody saying, hurry up, he's coming, he's almost here. Well, who can resist a crowd? The client can wait till later, and, and so you follow the crowd. And when you get to the edge of Jerusalem, you notice something that's, you see something that will be seared in your memory forever. There are thousands of people lined up on the main thoroughfare into Jerusalem, and they're waving palm branches. And in the distance, you see what looks like a small procession or parade surging toward the crowd. As it gets closer, you notice that there's a man who seems to be the center of attention, you know, probably his early 30s, average size, average looks. You know, if you judge a book by its cover, nothing special really about him. He's riding a donkey, which seems odd to you. You're from Rome. If an important person makes a big entrance, they ride in on a stallion with a chariot, maybe, or, or a caravan of camels, maybe a fancy coach or a wagon being pulled. But a donkey? As this man gets closer, the crowd begins to chant and shout, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. And you think, wait a second. Blessed is the king of Israel? Israel does not have a king. Caesar is their king. Rome, my hometown, is their ruler. What were they talking about? Is this the start of a, a revolution or something? You see a man on the edge of the crowd and you walk over to him and you ask him, who is this guy? And he says his name is Jesus. He's some sort of preacher, teacher, healer, guru guy. And, and the word is that he healed somebody just a couple days either. But he raised them from the dead, in fact. And you're like, right, yeah, right, raised somebody from the dead. The man goes on to say that the rumor is that he's performed many, many miracles, that he, he teaches and preaches in such a way that nobody's ever seen the like of him before. And he says the crowd is gathered there today because they're pinning their hopes on him, um, that they think he might be the one, the Messiah, the, the coming king of Israel who would restore the glory to their nation. You're standing there and the crowd is in a, in a frenzy and, and you remember thinking, I do believe they do just about anything he would ask them to do at this moment. They're treating him as if he's God himself. That's what made it so wild and so confusing for you, because at the end of the week on that Friday, just a few days later, you're making your way through the city again. And this time you come across another crowd, this time in the middle of the city in front of a government building. And you see Jesus again. This time he's not on a donkey and he's not surrounded by an adoring crowd. In fact, he's bleeding and it's obvious he's been beaten badly. And you move closer and you hear the crowd begin to shout again, just like the crowd earlier in the week. But this time they're crowding, shouting something very different. Crucify him. Crucify him. Give us Barabbas. You're afraid that something bad is going to happen if they don't get what they want. Again, you find a man on the edge of the crowd and you pull him aside and, and you ask him, what is going on? And he says, well, Jesus was arrested last night and, 
And the crowd wants blood. Pilate, the Roman-appointed governor, has just offered the crowd a choice. He said, I can release somebody to you. I can release a prisoner on this day. I can release to you Jesus, your teacher, preacher, the king of Israel. Or I can release to you Barabbas, who was a well-known criminal and murderer. And the crowd, many of the very same people who earlier in the week worshipped the very ground that Jesus walked on, now want him executed. Give us Barabbas, they say. Crucify him. And you remember thinking, what had happened? What has Jesus done to make this crowd turn on him so quickly? Less than a week after they were ready to make him their king, now they are ready to make him dead. Today we're continuing our sermon series, Journey to Jerusalem. And in John chapter 12, the passage that was just read, Jesus arrives in Jerusalem and we have this familiar scene of Palm Sunday. Jesus coming in on a donkey and the crowds cheering and chanting and, and they're excited that he's coming. And for us to understand the shift between the two crowds, the one on Palm Sunday, the one on Good Friday, it's important for us to kind of set the te- context of the story. So if you just allow me for a minute. A few weeks ago, uh, Pastor Wes took us through John 11. If you were with us, you remember it's the story of Lazarus. Remember Lazarus? He and his sisters, Mary and Martha, are good friends of Jesus. And uh, they live in Bethany, which is just about two miles from the outskirts of, of Jerusalem. And in the story in John 11, Lazarus becomes very sick. He's ill, and his sisters send word to Jesus to come and to heal him. They've seen him do it before. They know he can do it. But Jesus delays for whatever reason, and Lazarus dies. And when Jesus gets there, uh, they question him, if you would have been here earlier, our our brother, your friend would have lived. And Jesus says something kind of cryptic at the time, but it makes sense later. I'm the resurrection and the life. If anybody believes in me, though they die, they will live. And then he brings Lazarus back from the dead. And you can imagine that would have gained a lot of attention, positive, certainly, but also some negative The negative comes from an interesting source. John 11, verses 45 and 50, right before we jump into chapter 12, where it says, Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did put their faith in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin would be like the the ruling council, council leaders of the Jewish people. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many miraculous signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Then one of them named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation perish. So why does the Sanhedrin, this council of Jewish leaders, why do they want Jesus dead? It's quite simple, really. They, they didn't want to lose their power and attention. They feared for themselves and they feared for their culture and their people, their situation. You see, Jesus was drawing way too much attention. The crowds preferred him to them and eventually they feared the Romans would take notice and move quickly and brutally to squelch this kind of uprising, this movement, and that in the process, not only would Jesus and his followers be be harmed, but maybe them too, and they might lose the power they have and, and have less freedom and less influence. 
As we make our way through the passage today, I'm just going to drop a couple thoughts or observations and questions along the way. The first one from this passage is that you know, Jesus Christ didn't come back then and he doesn't necessarily come today first and foremost to preserve our culture, to preserve our way of life, or to preserve our nation. In fact, sometimes it's quite the opposite. Jesus calls us to repent and to reform and to give up our idols, to give up anything in our way of life or culture or nation that is not honoring to him. And to follow Christ means to pour out our life for others, to put him above both our culture and our country. Now, we've got to give the Sanhedrin a little bit of credit here. They, they, could, they could connect most of the dots. They knew that if they left Jesus unchecked, that radical, unsettling change would come. They just didn't know that it would come through Jesus' death. A little more context. In the last part of chapter 11, Jesus goes in the countryside a while, it says, because he knows people are plotting to kill him. And it's not time for that to happen yet. And then in the first part of chapter 12, he jumps right back into the line of fire. He returns to Bethany, the scene of Lazarus' resurrection, just two miles from Jerusalem. And there's this big dinner thrown in his honor. Pick it up now at verse 11. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and putting their faith in him. Next thought. If sometimes people will want to oppress or hurt or persecute or belittle or remove believers whose lives speak powerfully to the power of Jesus Christ and to his ability to bring resurrection to dead lives. You see, not only Jesus, but Lazarus was a problem for the Sanhedrin. Lazarus was a walking, talking, living, breathing billboard for the life, power, and love of Jesus Christ. And people, we're told here, were following Jesus not just because of Jesus only, but also because of Lazarus and and the, the amazing miracle in his life. And the powers that be could not have this. Question for us. Is your life, is my life, a living, breathing, walking, talking billboard that announces the life, power, and love of Christ, that illustrates the power of Christ to change lives? So that brings us to John 12, 12, where this huge crowd is there with palm branches welcoming Jesus Christ with shouts of praise and acclamation, shouting that he is the, the, the messenger of the Lord. He is the king of Israel. And, and Hosanna, as we know, means save or save us. Um, they knew that Christ was coming to save them. But they really didn't understand what he was coming to save them from. And they really didn't understand how he was going to do it. That he would die for them to save them, not lead a revolution, and not sit on an earthly throne to throw off their oppressors. Thought. When we're singing Hosanna, when we're singing praise to God, we're acknowledging he's Lord and King, yes, But we're also, in a sense, saying, save me, save us, and acknowledging that we are in need of saving and that Jesus is the only one, truly, who can do it. Next, verse 14. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. 
Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. So why did Jesus need to ride in on a donkey? Well, it tells us that it was to fulfill a prophecy out of Zechariah 9.9, which told us that, predicted that the king, of, the, the king of Israel, the Messiah, would ride into his people uh, on a donkey. You know, keep that thought for a second. You know, sometimes people may wonder, why doesn't God make it more clear to me? Why doesn't he give, give us, give me clues about what he is doing? Why doesn't he reveal himself more clearly to people, to me, to those that I love? Those are big questions, and there's no way I can completely answer them, especially in a few short minutes. But a few thoughts. First, there will always be a gap between what we know and what we don't regarding God and what he's doing in this world and in our lives. We certainly don't have to like that gap. And it's okay to sometimes question God about what he's doing. For instance, we wonder why good people get cancer and die. We wonder why some people in the world are born into such poverty and live on the edge of existence their whole lives. We wonder why young children or teens are cut down in the prime of their life before it's even started. We wonder why some people have every opportunity to hear about Jesus and others don't. I mean, I can give a few answers but they won't be completely 100% satisfactory. That's why it's called faith. I mean, God has created us with the purpose of being in a relationship with him. And he's also created us with a free will. And his desire is that we will choose to love and serve him. And if we knew everything, there really wouldn't be a, much of a choice, would there? And if there wasn't a choice, how could it be a relationship that's based in love? That's why it's called faith. Remember the scene in the movie Bruce Almighty when Jim Carrey plays uh, Bruce and, uh, and he's lost his job, he's lost his girlfriend, he's driving his car in the rain, he's kind of screaming at God, talking to God, he's upset. Why has this happened? Why me? Where are you? Are you really there? Give me a sign. And in the scene, there's all these obvious signs from God, but he keeps missing them. Now, God does not ask us to make this gigantic leap of blind, unreasoned, irrational faith. God has left us a trail of breadcrumbs for us to find our way to him. He's left clues to help people connect the dots about who he is and, and why he sent his son Jesus. And whether it's through his creation, through his word, through the stirring of the Holy Spirit, whether it's through the change and redeemed resurrected lives of his people, God has left us signs. He wants us to find him, to follow him. And most importantly and profoundly, God's greatest clue is his son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus riding in on a donkey, along with many, many other prophecies, dozens of prophecies in the Old Testament, made hundreds of years before he came about where he would be born, who he would be born to, the circumstances of his birth, how he would live, how he would die, how he would suffer, those along with the prophecy from Zechariah 9 about him riding on a donkey was just one of many signs and clues about who Jesus is and why he came. Thought. God is always sending us signs, some of them more obvious, granted, than others. Letting us know that he's there and that he wants a relationship with us. 
So what about the question, the scenario that I began with, the story of the, of the two crowds and the vast difference in their mood and attitude? What changed for them to turn so violently against Jesus? One word, expectations. The crowd was so large and so passionate and so excited because they had high expectations of Jesus. He would be the one who would bring them a new way of life. He would be the one who would bring a new era to their nation. He would be the one who would, who would be their king, their Messiah, their chosen one. Everything, they thought, would be different from now on. They had sky-high expectations. But the expectations were the wrong ones. And so a few days later, when word of the street was that Jesus had been arrested and beaten, and that all their dreams were going up in smoke, well, some of them ran away. Some of them disowned him. Some thought things will never change around here. And some showed up in the crowd, bitter, angry, disillusioned, out for blood, shouting, crucify him. I mean, think about how quickly we turn on politicians or athletes or celebrities that we kind of put on a pedestal. When they disappoint us, when they let us down, when we discover they're not something that we thought they were. I mean, it's practically a national pastime, isn't it, to put people up, build them up, and then to tear them down? I mean, think about how sometimes we respond when a, someone close to us, a spouse, a parent, a child, a friend, a co-worker, doesn't meet our expectations, and we're frustrated, maybe angry, resentful. Unmet expectations in a relationship, especially in one in which we have high hopes one in which we're invested emotionally, when we're all in. Unmet expectations have the potential to lead us to a place of hurt, pain, bitterness, anger, frustration, and tragically sometimes even something much darker than that. Thought. When God doesn't give you what you want, when God doesn't meet your expectations of him, how do you respond? When I was in the Congo a few months ago, practically everybody I met had a much harder life than me. Practically everybody I met had suffered way more than I had lost a, a limb or suffering with some horrible disease or they lost a child or several children, lost a spouse. Um, for instance, I think of a woman that, that I met and visited with, lost her husband, young woman, couldn't have been more than 30 Five children, mud hut, thatched roof, poorest of the poor, no way to make a living, just dependent upon those who, who would have charity upon her. And yet she was in worship, praising God. I'm sure she questioned at times, but praising God, saying, blessed be your name. I think of a, a man from our congregation, a friend of mine, single man in his 50s, never married, would like to be married, realizes it's probably never going to happen. Loves kids, never going to have one. And yet he's poured his life into others. He serves. He's helpful. He's kind. He could have given in to resentment or frustration. Why them and not me? But he's here in worship and sings, Blessed be your name. For a little closer to home, I think of my mother. 31 years ago, diagnosed with MS. It changed her life. Made it more difficult for her and my father. Limited her mobility, changed things in her health, her outlook physically, but not her spiritual outlook, not her emotional or mental outlook. She's here in worship and sings, Blessed be your name. 
So here's the take home for us today. When God doesn't give you what you want, when God doesn't give me what I want, when he doesn't meet our expectations, how do we respond? If our marriage isn't what we had dreamed of, do we become bitter and angry? When our expectation of a good, healthy life is thwarted, when illness or disease limits or shortens it, of ours or somebody that we care for, how do we respond? When our expectations of what type of family we're going to have don't go exactly as we expect, how do we respond to God? Do we draw away? Who needs you, God? Do we move from the natural and understandable response of asking questions, of expressing some doubt to all-out rejection of God and enmity towards him and anger towards him? Do we say, if you're not going to meet my expectations, God, then why should I try to meet yours? Jesus loves you and me. He died for us. He rose from the dead so that we can live new lives and live with him forever and all his people. And that's his greatest gift, isn't it? I mean, that's what we celebrate on Palm Sunday and Good Friday and Easter Sunday and hopefully every Sunday that we gather together. Jesus rode into Jerusalem knowing full well what awaited him. He knew what the crowd expected of him. He knew they would desert him and turn on him. And he knew the disciples, his closest friend, would desert him and run when he needed them most. And he knew when he rode into Jerusalem that he'd be misunderstood, that he'd be mistreated. He knew how people would respond. And yet knowing all this, he did it anyway, willingly and lovingly. And we are called to respond, you and I. We're called to trust and to follow him. Not with blind, unreasoned, irrational faith. And not with an expectation, certainly, that our lives will be smooth and perfect and happy all the time. But we are called to respond and to follow and to trust. Knowing that as we do so, the one who rode into Jerusalem on a donkey will be walking with us each step of the way. And knowing that he who died and rose again for us will bring us life and hope and grace and peace. Final thought. While God may not meet our expectations of him, I promise you that he will always, always, always meet our greatest needs. There's a difference, isn't there, between what we want and expect and what we need. God will always, always meet our greatest needs. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus. And um, we thank you for his life, his death, his resurrection. We thank you that he is one that we can trust. And Lord, we, we admit and we know that there are times in our lives where we don't understand what's going on around us. Why good things happen to bad people. Why... Some people may have something that we want and we don't get it. We understand why. And Lord, help us to put our trust in you. Help us to rely upon you. And to know, Lord, that you will always meet and provide us with the things that we need. We offer ourselves to you, Jesus, saying that whatever the circumstances in our lives, as we wrestle through them with you, may we be able to say, blessed be the name of the Lord. We ask this in your name, Lord. Amen.